0: Okay, Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for another day just to be alive and be able to get up out of bed and come to church this morning, to be able to gather together like this as your family. Um, We're here to learn more about you from your word so that we can have the peace that goes beyond all comprehension that you desire for us so greatly. And Father, we're grateful for everyone who's here this morning and we also pray for all those that could not make it this morning that are struggling with sicknesses of various kinds. You know who they are, Father, and we ask that you encourage them and give them strength and hope and faith as they go through their battle uh, for your glory. And we hope to see them again soon face to face. Father, we most of all thank you for your precious Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent out of heaven to become a man and to humble himself in such ways that were totally undeserving. But out of love, he did that all for us, all the way to the cross. Father, help us never be familiar with this crazy show of love for us. Help us grasp it more and more so we can appreciate you more and more. And we ask, Father, for your Spirit's guidance this morning. Uh, Help us see what your personal message is for us today as you had this plan from eternity past. We thank you in advance, Father. We ask all these things in the name of our precious Lord, God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by the power of your Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right. Well, once again, why is our hope so certain. So as Pastor would say, I get the fun stuff, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, I get a lot of topics the Spirit puts on my heart to, that are um, not as challenging, let's just say, as the ones that Pastor is commissioned to bring to us and confront us with so that we challenge our own norms, values, uh, what we consider to be normal, The Spirit's been so faithful and diligent with us to get us to examine ourselves and grow up in the faith. So, you know, that's pastor's calling, apparently. Um, Mine seems to be, in a way, to to bring a sort of a reprieve, maybe, uh, from the pulpit to um, give us some things that, that are, I don't know, more reassuring or whatever. You know what I mean, though? So, as you can tell by the topic, our title... It's about the good news and we're going to be exploring a facet of why our hope is so certain, why we should be so uh, confident as believers in the Lord. So let's dive into our discussion. Um, When a person places their trust in Christ, just how confident can they be of the hope of eternal life and salvation from this sins? That's maybe another way to put this question on the board. How confident should we be of our hope of eternal life and salvation from our sins? Now, most of you know the answer, at least academically. You know the right answer biblically if you were given a quiz right now. However, none of us carry a perfect, complete hope within us. That's reserved, honestly, for... It's consummation in heaven when we see the Lord face to face. Only then will we be perfect and have a perfect hope that's undisturbable, if that's even a word. But in this life, none of us possess a perfect, complete hope in our hearts. Not all the time, that's for sure. So in other words, we all doubt at times, we all lack faith at times, because we're weak in the flesh. And we're challenged by the things in the world and even our own old sin nature to question, to doubt, uh, to worry, etc. So just as an analogy, if there were such a thing as a hope meter that could measure the hope we have, maybe something like the one on the board, if there was something like a hope meter, what would it measure for you on a day-to-day basis? Our hope level might be at 80% some days, uh, 50% other days, 95% on those really good days where you have the right perspective, uh, where you're believing and applying the word in your soul and in your life. So even though we'll never have a perfect hope in this life, God desires our hope to be ever-increasing experientially. God hopes... That our hope is always climbing, if you will. And it's never perfect. We have dips just because of life and what we already mentioned. But God desires our hope to be ever increasing, even though we never arrive. Okay, you remember the asymptote chart where the line always gets closer to the top perfection, but never actually touches. But God's desire is for us to increase the certainty of our hope in our hearts. And those who continually submit to his word and his spirit, and that's, that's, that's a requirement. <laughs> that's a way God set up life. You, just like we've been in our recent series on peace, you're not going to have peace unless you continually pursue him and obey the word of God. You're not going to experience the peace that God meant for you to experience. And so it is with hope. Those who continually submit to the word and the spirit, God will grow them and increase their hope over time. As we search in God's word once again to further understand the things of God, this series is going to explore at least one angle into our main question in hopes of stabilizing the hope in our souls even more individually. So again, the main question on the table is, what is or why is our hope to be so certain? As Pastor Collins might say, we know the data. Many of you know what the Bible says about this. But do we carry a certain, definite, unwavering hope within us on a regular basis? In this series, we're going to see that part of our hope is this on the board, that Jesus Christ is our great high priest, who perfectly represents us all to God. This is kind of going to be the main theme of the next few lessons. Jesus Christ is our great high priest who perfectly represents us all to God. And for example, that's seen in Hebrews 3.1 and Hebrews 4.14. So that's the angle or the perspective that the Spirit's going to take with us this week. So let's begin by going to Hebrews three verse one. Hebrews 3, verse 1, it's in the, towards the back of your New Testament, for those of you who are new. And we're going to spend a lot of time in the book of Hebrews, and by the end of this series, hopefully you'll have a better understanding of this book as well, Um, big picture. It really is an amazing book. But Hebrews 3 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, by just so much as the builder of the house has more honor. Than the house for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So there's another evidence in the scriptures that Jesus is God. He's not just a man. The builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things were to be which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house whose house we are if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. So there we see in verse 1, Jesus is called the apostle and high priest of our confession. And the Lord has many titles throughout Holy Scripture. And he's fulfilled every office perfectly. And that includes the office of high priest. Notice In verse 2, as a man, even though Jesus was also God, he became a man. And as a man, he was appointed by God to this office. And that's very important. So as a man, he represents us, mankind, to God the Father. And as we're going to see, that's what a priest does. Go to Hebrews 4, verse 14. Hebrews 4.14 Therefore since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession so there we have it again he's called the great high priest Jesus the son of God since we have him let us hold fast our confession it's hope again for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, in other words, because of him, our great high priest, who has now passed through the heavens, right, and represents us, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That word confidence is very similar to the Greek definition of the word hope, which means confident expectation. So why are we supposed to have this confidence? One main part is because our great high priest is now passed into the heavens and represents us to God perfectly. So we, in verse 16, can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So we must first understand what a high priest is, according to the scriptures. And please bear in mind, this is not an exhaustive study whatsoever on what a high priest is. All right. But let's just get a little understanding or background on it so that we know what this means. Uh, This is going to help us set the stage for this main focus in the series. So on the board, first of all, a priest is someone appointed by God to represent sinful people before him. A priest is someone appointed by God to represent sinful people before him. Hebrews 5.1. So look at Hebrews 5.1. It actually gives us a perfect laid out definition of a high priest. Hebrews 5.1, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. In the Old Testament, under the law, there were many priests over many years that came from the tribe of Levi, and their job was to represent the people to God. They were called, actually appointed by God, to represent the people. We're all sinners, including the priests themselves were sinners. But they were appointed, they were given this privilege to go to God with gifts and sacrifices for sin, representing all the people. The high priest was the one appointed to enter the Holy of Holies in the temple once a year with the blood from the animal sacrifices, to offer it for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. So the high priest had a very special job, very important job, even more so than all the priests that were serving with him at the time. So that's just a little background. Uh, At any given time, there were many priests, but only one high priest. As we just read in Hebrews... Holy Scripture tells us Jesus became our great high priest. And this was once for all to represent us to God the Father. Now, here's where I want you to pay special attention. Jesus became our great high priest in Hebrews 4.14, we just read, but according to a different order. So Jesus became our great high priest, absolutely true. In fact, the one and final high priest, the perfect one, But he became our great high priest according to a different order, not from the tribe of Levi, which was under the law, under the Mosaic law, but instead from a priesthood that lasts forever with no designated beginning or end. That's what we're going to see now in the book of Hebrews. So, in other words, Jesus wasn't just a traditional priest, Um, he wasn't even in the tribe of Levi. So let's just talk about this for a minute on the board. Jesus was a Jew, but he was born from the tribe of Judah. So he was not from the tribe of Levi, from which all Jewish priests came forth. In fact, you had to be from the tribe of Levi if you were going to be a priest for God. No other tribe could have any of their peoples be appointed a priest. That wasn't their gift. And only God can appoint any spiritual gift. So again, just think about this. Jesus was a Jew, but he was born from the tribe of Judah. So he was not from the tribe of Levi, from which all Jewish priests came forth. We're going to see this in Hebrews 7.14, but also in Revelation 5.5. Jesus is called the, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. So we know Jesus is of the tribe of Judah. So he's not qualified, according to the law, to be a priest. So how is he a priest? Jesus as our Messiah. Now think about this too. Jesus as our Messiah fulfilled so many Old Testament prophecies. Right? Many of you know a lot of them. He had to fulfill all these things perfectly that were written hundreds of years before he came forth as a man. And he did such He did all that for us. So why not this priesthood? Why is this different? Why wouldn't he, if he is our great high priest, have been born into the tribe of Levi? And didn't he have to be? Well, yes, if he was under the law. But Jesus came to fulfill the law and move on from it? It Maybe to help us graduate? (laughs) to not have that be on us anymore, as we're going to see. But in Jewish law, priests only could come from Levi. But God's ways are not man's ways. That's the first thing to remember. God works in mysterious ways. God likes to surprise us even. God likes to get us out of our comfort zone and stop us from thinking that we've got it all figured out, which we never do. God's ways are not man's ways according to Isaiah 55. So in God's order of things, how could Jesus be our great high priest? Well, again, it was according to a different order as part of God's perfect plan. And again, we're still introducing our subject. So let's read from Hebrews chapter 5 in context. Uh, you're still in Hebrews 5.1? Okay. Hebrews 5.1 through 10. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself also is beset with weakness. Now this is talking about the Jewish priests, right? They themselves were sinners too. And they sacrificed animals and the the blood was shed for their sins too. So again, he, this priest, can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. Aaron, if you remember, was the brother of Moses. And when the law was given, Aaron was the first high priest from the tribe of Levi, of course, because it was under the law, that was the requirement. So again, verse 4, No one takes this honor to himself, but receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he, God, who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, talking about Jesus, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, He became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So now our high priest that represents us before God is perfect. We just saw that in verse 9. That's why those who obey him can receive eternal salvation, will receive eternal salvation. And Jesus, our perfect high priest, is in the order of a man named Melchizedek. As we just saw in verse 6 and verse 10. Again, look at verse 10. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So again, what we're doing now is we're setting the stage so we can realize why our hope is so certain why our hope of eternal life is so certain and salvation from our sins is so certain for those who have repented towards God and trusted in Christ. Those who do that thing, and it's a heart issue between each man and God as we know, those that do that thing, they are saved and should have a hope and a certainty of salvation. So turn to Hebrews 6 verse 13 as we continue to kind of scan through Hebrews. We're reading a lot, but we're we're skipping some parts of it. But again, hopefully this gives you a a nice big picture view of what Hebrews is about. Hebrews 6.13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, and that's that's us also, by the way, not just Abraham, not just his Jewish children, but Abraham's the father of us all, according to the Scriptures, So in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This is really an awesome statement here in verses 16 through 18 because God is saying he knows and understands man. And he's saying, even though my ways are unchangeable anyway, in verse uh, 17, the unchangeableness of his purpose, even though if God establishes a purpose, he doesn't change his mind. But even though we should know that and we do know that, we don't always believe that. So what does God do? He, He interposes it with an oath. He even gives his own word to Abraham, for example, and says, I'll surely bless you and I'll surely multiply you. And God can swear by no one greater than himself because he's perfect. So how much more should we trust an oath from God, in other words, rather than an oath from man? So this is how great this promise is from God. And this is, therefore, how great our hope should be in the hope of eternal life through Christ. So again, verse 18 So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. Those of us who have taken refuge in the Lord, who have turned to Him to be rescued from our sins, they're the ones that are in God's hands forever, is what this is saying. And this term, "taken refuge, in verse 18, was used by David a lot throughout the Psalms. And it reveals that it's the person that surrendered to Christ alone, not trusting in themselves or their own goodness, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. They are secure in God's merciful hands. Think about it this way. Who who is the very one, who are the very ones that God promises to rescue? The ones that turn to him, right? The ones that take refuge to him. That's it. So if that's you, awesome. If it's not you, you should think about it and repent and turn to him with your heart, not just with your lips. But the fact is, those who have taken refuge in the Lord, God protects Period. So we're going to see some of this in the book of uh, Psalms. Let's just visit this term, taking refuge. Uh, Turn to Psalm 2, verse 12. Psalm 2, verse 12. Psalms are right about in the middle of your Bible. And of course, in the Old Testament... They were looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, the Son of God, to save them. But salvation has always been the same throughout all the ages, placing one's trust in the Messiah of God. So look at Psalm 2 verse 12. We're just going to see a little bit about this uh, term that was used in Hebrews 6:18. Psalm 2:12: "Do homage to the Son." That he not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him! Those who refuse to take refuge in him and turn to him as Lord and Savior, they will be under God's wrath by their own choice, as we know. But how blessed are those who take refuge in him? Why? Because God's a God who cannot lie. And when he says, you're protected, or you're his, it's done. Go to Psalm 18, verse 2. Psalm 18, verse 2. So we just saw in Psalm 2 that we should do homage to the Son. The Son of God is even mentioned in the Old Testament. But Psalm 18, 2, we see the same idea for taking refuge The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. You know, all I can picture here is back in David's age, he was in a lot of fights, a lot of wars, a lot of battles. There were arrows being shot at him all the time, literally. And all I can picture is him taking shelter behind this huge rock as the enemy's trying to shoot at him. And you can just picture taking refuge right behind or underneath even a huge rock that the enemy can't, can't get at you. The arrows are not going to penetrate that rock. And Jesus, as we know, is called the rock in Scripture. And so that's what David's saying here, maybe even a, a double meaning. Again, in verse 2, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, my shield. And the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. And go to Psalm 34, verse 22. Psalm 34, 22. The Lord redeems the souls of his servants and none of those. Who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is kind of right along with our hope. Why should our hope be so certain? Why should we be so confident in our place in Christ Jesus? Well, this is one reason. The promises of God, like verse 22, none of those who take refuge in him, and this is a heart issue again, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So there's the promise of salvation to those who humbly turn to the Lord. And so right there, we should have our hope secure. It's from our God who cannot lie, who is ever faithful, and promises to save those who trust in him. And yet, Holy Scripture goes on to secure our hope even stronger. Why? Because God knows we're weak. God knows we don't always believe what he says even though he's a god who cannot lie. So turn again to Hebrews chapter 6 verse 17. Hebrews 6:17. So our hope again should be very secure if we have taken refuge in the Lord. Hebrews six seventeen. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is, it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, as talking about the heavenly holy of holies. Jesus entered within the veil for us to represent us, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So here we see in verse 19, this hope we should have as solid as an anchor, for our soul steadfast and sure and we have one that enters within the veil Jesus our high priest into the holy of holies only where the high priest can go to represent the people to God and basically ask for forgiveness so (laughs) it's funny I was reviewing my notes earlier this morning and I'm like Jesus is the forerunner right? he went into the temple he went behind the veil even right And I pictured a bunch of kids getting in trouble. Okay, a bunch of kids all together getting in trouble. And they send in the favorite son, right? You go in and talk to dad because he likes you and he'll listen to you. We've all sinned. You go tell him we're sorry, right? And that's all I could picture. And Jesus is a man. He became a true humanity for us to be one of us so he could represent us. And yet he's the perfect son. And that's really what he's doing You know, it's a loose analogy, but he's going in behind the veil where we can't go. And he's righteous, and he's holy, and God the Father accepts him. And he represents us perfectly because he's totally acceptable to God. And on top of it, in verse 20, he's a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And this, again, is really important. So there we see what kind of priest Jesus became for us. So listen carefully here on the board regarding Jesus' priesthood. It was from an order established by God well before Moses and the law were ever given. It was the order of Melchizedek, which we just read in Hebrews 6.20. Again, Jesus' priesthood is from an order established by God well before Moses and the law were ever given. So well before there were ever priests under the law, right, as we know it, well before there were ever animal sacrifices, well before, you know, the tribe of Levi and how the priest had to be from Levi, well before that, Jesus was called a priest in the order of a man named Melchizedek. So I want you to keep the timeline in your head. This was before God created the Jewish race through a man named Abram and before even his name was changed to Abraham. And even when Abraham became a Jew, it was many centuries later that God gave them the law and the Jewish priesthood. So we're talking centuries before, okay? And also remember, even in this fallen faithless world, which it was in the time of Abram, God always has his men, a remnant of his servants in the world. One of those remnant, one of those servants that God held for himself in a horrible time on the earth was a man named Melchizedek. So just as a side note here, let's remember, okay, as we come to church and we get discouraged sometimes that a lot of people out there don't want anything to do with Christ or won't listen to the good news, Let's remember, we're never alone, and we're never the only ones following the Lord. Even though it may seem that way sometimes, don't buy that lie. God always has his servants in the world scattered around. You're not always going to meet them. You're not always going to even know they're a servant of God, but they're, they're there doing his will. So even in the time of Abram, well before Moses and the law came about, the world was a godless mess. That's one reason God decided to make a people for himself. He's like, I'm going to start a whole new race, and you're going to be my people, the Jews. But anyway, there were always some faithful servants of the Most High God, and one of them was a priest named Melchizedek. So look again at Hebrews 6.20. I believe that's where you are right now, right? Hebrews 6.20. And let's read verse 20 all the way through um, chapter 7, verse 2 where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. So here we have our introduction to this man, Melchizedek, King of Salem and King of Righteousness also. That might be significant to some of you. This man, this priest, was a type of the perfect priest to come, our Lord Jesus Christ. And we see this in his two titles. Go in your Bibles to Psalm 85, verse 9. Psalm 85, verse 9. So this man has these two titles, which which just so happen to be two of the same titles that Jesus has. Obviously not a coincidence. Melchizedek purposely was, was appointed by God To be a type of the coming Messiah, the Son of God. To be a type of Jesus Christ. Psalm 85, verses 9 and 10. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Now I want you to just think about this. This crossed my mind too here when you're reading this verse. Loving kindness, which is the, the Old Testament word for grace. Grace and truth don't always seem to mix. Like on our, from our perspective, a human perspective, right? Grace, loving kindness, gentleness. But then sometimes the truth can be very harsh, right? And direct and confrontational. And then it says righteousness and peace, likewise. Just like loving kindness and truth, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. God wants peace with mankind. He wants to offer and does offer peace to mankind. But it had to be through the righteous one. His righteousness still had to be satisfied. And that was Jesus, the perfectly righteous one, our great high priest. And through Jesus, our great high priest, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That's why we have salvation offered to us freely by grace, through faith. Just awesome. But this Melchizedek, this guy in the Old Testament that seems to come out of nowhere, as we're going to see, he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace as a type of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus had both of these titles given to him. For example, on the board, in Isaiah 9-6, many of you know this prophecy, uh, we often mention this at Christmas time. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. So there we see Jesus has the same title. And then turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 23 verse 5 Jeremiah 23 5 should be pretty close to the book of Psalms so we're seeing it now just just so we get a clear big picture Jesus has the same titles that this priest Melchizedek had uh, Jeremiah 23 verse 5 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Not just a branch, a righteous branch. And he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our Lord righteousness. And that's really reference to Jesus Christ, who was God, who was the Lord. And this is a prophecy about the righteous ones coming. So we just saw on the board, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. And in Jeremiah 23, 6, he's called the Lord, our righteousness. So our Lord always does and always did the right thing. That's what made him pleasing to the Father, as per our recent lessons on receiving the peaceful fruit of righteousness in Hebrews 12. And that's what qualified Jesus to be a worthy sacrifice for us. He was perfectly righteous. He was the king of righteousness, the one acceptable to God the Father. So there are no coincidences in Holy Scripture. As a type of our Lord Jesus Christ, a man named Melchizedek, Was given the titles that would point to our Savior and our High Priest forever. So go back to Hebrews 7, verse 1. Hebrews 7, verse 1. I hope you're starting to get, you know, kind of a big picture view of this thing as we dive into a little bit more about uh, what this means that Jesus is our High Priest and how it relates to our hope. Hebrews 7.1 For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, And then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Just as a side note, king of Salem, Salem means Jerusalem. That's really even before the promised land was given to Abraham. He was the king of Salem, which means peace. And the very name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then notice verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. This is talking about this man named Melchizedek. There are no details in Holy Scripture that allow us to limit Melchizedek or to put boundaries on him. It's interesting. Obviously purposely done by God. But there are no details about where this man came from When he died, if he died, no details in Scripture. Purposely given that way by God because, as you can see in verse 3, he was made like the Son of God. He remains a priest perpetually. That means ongoing, permanent, everlasting. And that is directly related to why our hope should be so certain in our hearts. Before we go any further... Let's now travel back in time and see what's revealed about this great priest of the Most High God as he was given as a type of our eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. So turn all the way back to the book of Genesis, chapter 14. First book in your Bible, Genesis 14, verse 18. There's not much said about this man throughout all of Scripture. In fact, there's really probably only three passages we've got the book of hebrews he's mentioned quite a bit in relationship to jesus christ he's mentioned here in genesis 14 and he's mentioned in psalm which we will see but look at genesis 14 verse 18 and melchizedek king of salem brought out bread and wine does that sound familiar talk about prophecy right and being a type of somebody to come He brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And then he, Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. This is almost all we are told About this priest, who Abram, the father of our faith, honored and gave gifts to. In other words, we don't know where this priest came from. It seems like he showed up out of nowhere. We don't know his beginning or his end, which we just read in Hebrews, and that should sound familiar because our Lord Jesus Christ is called the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, in Revelation 22. And yet, this priest, Represented Abram to the Lord and blessed him. Now we have one other mention of Melchizedek in prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah. Uh, Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1. So here we're going to see a prophecy about the one who would come, the Messiah. Who would be a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek? So this was was even predicted a thousand years before Christ came. Psalm 110.1. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array, from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. And then look at verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, talking to the Messiah, the Lord, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So there we have a prophecy about the Lord's coming. A priest forever would be one of his offices. And this has everything to do with our hope being so certain in our hearts. A priest forever would be one of his offices. So turn back again to Hebrews 7, verse 1. You guys should know where all these books are now, huh? I think we've gone to the same three books. Hebrews 7 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham and he was returning, or as he was returning, from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Then notice the further description of this priest in verse 3. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to give a tenth, or collect a tenth, I'm sorry, collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, talking about Melchizedek, collected a tenth from Abraham and bless the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, Melchizedek is declared as being greater than Abraham, who's the father of our faith. Who's greater than Abraham? Like in human terms, right? He's called the father of our faith. And yet he's greater than Abraham. He blesses Abraham, not the other way around. So, who was this man? And more importantly, who does he represent? So, again in verse 7 But without dispute, or without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And so to speak, Through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? Remember, Aaron was from the tribe of Levi, the first high priest under the law, right? So in verse 11, it's saying if, if perfection, if we could be made perfect through the Levitical priesthood, that would be wonderful, but we got a big problem. It doesn't didn't work for us, right? We're sinners. So what further need, verse 11, was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. Verse 14, For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. So we're back to this. Why a different order? Why did Jesus have to come from a different order for priesthood other than the Levitical? It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. In verse 17, for it is attested of him, Jesus, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. I hope you go home and just read this chapter through again, chapter 7. Because there's a lot there, and it can be confusing. Some of you are probably like, what do some of these terms mean? But if you read this over and over in context, you see the big picture, um, and you see the importance of Jesus coming through the other priesthood, which was with the power of an indestructible life. In other words, what good is it to have a priest that's going to die on you? What good is it to have a priest representing you that's going to die on you and not, not be able to continue and represent you? That's why Jesus came from a different priesthood, a permanent priesthood, and thus our hope. So again, keep in mind the question on the table, on the board, why is our hope so certain? If you're a believer, why should your hope be so certain? This is one major reason. Again, verse 17, let's continue reading. For it is attested of him, Jesus, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, For they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. We just read that quote, that prophecy from Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests on the one hand existed in great numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing but Jesus on the other hand because he continues forever holds his priesthood permanently therefore he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them this should start to becoming Overwhelming to you. What this is saying. The, the permanency of his priesthood allows us to draw near to God through him, and he always lives to make intercession for them. Verse 26 For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. And in Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, let's continue. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and in the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. And this is all why Hebrews chapter 10 talks about a once-for-all sacrifice for all time. Jesus, by taking his own perfect blood into the Holy of Holies as our great high priest, once for all satisfied the righteous requirements of God the Father. Remember, he's called the Lord our righteousness in Jeremiah 23. So on the board, the Lord our righteousness, his precious blood, pay the eternal price, unlike the blood of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament, which were only temporary until the great and final sacrifice came in the person of Jesus Christ, which is elaborated on in Hebrews chapter 10. So we now have an eternal high priest in the heavens representing us. Whoever will have him, whoever will take him in humility, by faith, has an eternal high priest in the heavens representing him. He is perfectly and eternally accepted by God. So he's the reason, his very person, he's the reason that our hope should be so certain. We literally place our hope in him, not in just the facts about him, in him. The person of Christ. He's behind the veil where you and I could not go. He's the one we sent in. He willingly, willingly went in for us to represent us to the holy God of the universe. And because He's the Lord our righteousness, God the Father is perfectly pleased with His righteousness, and He shed that perfect blood of His for our unrighteousness. And so it's done, it's permanent. So on the board, as we begin to close, our great hope. Jesus is eternally, perpetually, permanently representing us sinners before God. How wonderful that is. Hebrews 7.3 and Hebrews 7.24. Just let that sink in for a minute. Don't say, oh, I know, I know, I know this point. I know. I know. I know, if that's your attitude, you're too familiar because this is what changed everything for us. The fact that he's eternal and perpetual and permanent as high priest representing us sinners before God for all time to never run out. We have a high priest representing us who cannot fail and cannot expire on us. He's perfect and his term doesn't run out. Imagine back in the day of the Jews when they had a lot of priests, but they had one high priest at a time living. And imagine they had a high priest that they really liked, but he was getting old. And they might have said to themselves, boy, I just love our high priest. This really stinks that he's getting old and he's going to die soon. And we'll have to hope We get another one that's as faithful as him. Well, we never have to say that about Jesus Christ. We never have to worry that this awesome representative we have is going to expire one day or his qualifications are going to run out. And that's why we have such a great hope that we have. That's beyond words even. So our precious Lord is our great high priest who lives on forever, resurrected from the dead and seated at the right hand of God the Father. His term never runs out and his qualifications can never be questioned. So again, the point on the board, Jesus is eternally, perpetually, permanently representing us sinners before God. And this should mean everything to us. He should mean everything to us. And in our, even in our daily lives, if we wake the heck up, He should be our purpose for getting up and working and doing everything we do because He changed everything forever. There's no w- more worrying. There's no more doubts. There's no more wondering if we're properly represented ever. And that's why we should be so willing to give up our own lives. As Jesus would say, lose your life. We should be willing to lose our life for him. We cling to our stupid, selfish lives as though they're ours to begin with. And as though there's nothing more important than our lives. And yet he gave us a life to bring him glory. This very one who died for us in such a horrible way, voluntarily, voluntarily, we stop and consider how much he loves us. If we do that thing, it makes us want to give up our lives, want to lose our lives. That's when God changes your heart, when you submit to him in this way and this truth. We should love him back with all our hearts. As the Apostle John gives to us plainly but deeply in 1 John four nineteen. we love because he first loved us. So if you're struggling, this is something to contemplate on your own time. How much he loved for us, how much Jesus did for us, and how he represents us so perfectly now forever. Because of doing the most horrible thing ever in human history on the cross, because of that, willingness to love us actively that way, not just say he loves us, Because he followed through on it and loved us in that incredible way, we are able to love him back. And we should be appreciating this great high priest that's behind the Holy of Holies, in the Holy of Holies, totally satisfying God the Father on our behalf now forever and ever and ever. Again, it's really just beyond words. So we'll close there. We'll continue with this series on Tuesday. Uh, just keep this verse in mind, and please read the Hebrew Hebrews chapter seven in context for yourselves to absorb more of this big picture. And when we continue on Tuesday, it will definitely help. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace and truth. And that you brought them together for us so harmoniously, so perfectly, so wonderfully for our benefit. You've had, through your precious Son, righteousness and peace kiss each other. And we have the King of Righteousness and the King of Peace representing us with you. Once for all, forever. We're so grateful, Father, that you came up with a plan that was going to be permanent That doesn't allow for any doubt, any misplaced hope even. But we place our hope firmly in you and your precious Son as our permanent, perfect representative. We thank you, Father, that Jesus was made a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, that he has a unique priesthood that lasts forever. Father, help us live our daily lives knowing this, believing this, trusting in Him, and having this great hope steadfast in our hearts. And Father, we ask that You help us bring these wonderful truths out to a lost and dying world that needs it so desperately. We ask that You bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray, by the power of Your Spirit. Amen. Thank you.